0: So I'll encourage you, if you brought a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and grab that, and you can turn to John chapter 17. Um, So we are actually finishing John 17 this morning, and I know that I said last week that we were going to break it into three, and I, I, I shared that with the staff on Monday. Well, I changed my mind. And I think Corlin's answer or his response was like, you lied to us, (laughs) but I wasn't lying. So the the, the chapter uh, chapter 17 is broken into three. Jesus is praying. Um, It's his high priestly prayer, this long prayer that he prays. And naturally, it is split into three. Uh, Jesus prays for himself, which we looked at last week. And then for the rest of the chapter, Jesus prays for his 11 disciples who were right there with him. And then he prays for all future followers as well, like you and I sitting here today who believed through the, the, those 11 apostles and their witness. However, what Jesus prays for his disciples and for us is almost identical. And so as I studied and looked, I said, well, we would, we would have the same sermon two weeks in a row, and, and maybe we need that. But essentially, what Jesus Praise for His disciples and for us, is that we would be one. Um, The theme for verses 6 through 26 is our unity as believers. Um, Jesus, over and over and over again, which we'll see, is that He prays that you and I, that all of His followers would be one. And so we want to ask this morning, well, what exactly does that look like? What is unity among believers? You know, the first thing that I thought of is, You know, the dad driving and yelling at his kids in the back, get along back there. Is that unity that we all just have to get along and never disagree and never argue, right? Is God looking at us going, ah, you kids, get along with each other. Be unified. Is that what unity means? I'm not saying any of your fathers did that, right? Or you do that. Um, But I was threatened a few times. We'll turn this car around if you guys don't. Is that unity? Is that what it means? Just get along with each other. Be nice to one another. Or is there something deeper? Is unity in the church just us always getting along? And so I think it actually goes deeper than that. Jesus, he's going to pray to his Father about unity among believers. And in this text, um, there's basically six things. Um, there's, there's three aspects that are involved with our unity. Three things that go along with, with what Jesus is talking about when he says unity and then there's three outcomes of you and I as believers living in unity. There's three things that it accomplishes. And so what we want to do is I just want to read the text, and then we'll go through those six things. What, it, what does unity actually entail, and then what does it actually accomplish? So if your Bible is open, you can follow along, John 17, and we'll start in verse 6. So if you remember, verses 1 to 5, Jesus has prayed for himself, and now he switches and he'll pray for his, his followers. So verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. The glory that you've given me, I have given to you, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me before you, or because you loved me before the foundation of the world." O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The reading of God's Word. So I know that that's a mouthful. It's a lot. But what we want to do is just kind of work our, our way through and try and make sense of what exactly is Jesus praying for. So in verses 6 through 10, Jesus is actually just describing his disciples a little bit. And what he's actually doing, I believe, is that he's giving the grounds for his, requre- his request of the Father. It's like, it's like Jesus, before he, get into, get it, before he gets into asking the Father for things, he's just reminding them, Father, this is who my disciples are. This is why you should answer this prayer about them. It's like he's saying, These are the reasons that I am praying for these disciples. Here's why, Father. And so in verse six, Jesus says, I manifested the Father's name to those whom he had given uh, Jesus out of the world. And so, what, what does that mean when Jesus says, I manifested your name to them? Um, oftentimes, the Bible uses that word name. And, it, and it, it's more than just, you know, my name is Andrew. It's more than just my name. In the Bible, when someone manifests, you know, a name to someone, it, it actually, it's meant to convey um, a person's entire character. So it, so what that means is Jesus didn't just go to his disciples and go, hey, psst, God's name is Yahweh. He didn't just tell them the name. Jesus manifested, made known to his disciples The full character of of God, right? He revealed God to them. So remember, a while ago in in our study of John, the disciples said, show us the Father, Jesus. And what was Jesus' response? Don't you know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus was saying, I am revealing everything about God's character to you. I made known His, His name to you. And then this is what Jesus says about his disciples. If you just work through those verses, they belonged to the Father. The Father gave them to Jesus, and they've kept the Father's word. Verse 7, everything given to Jesus is from the Father. That's what they believed, that Jesus came from the Father. Verse 8, they received the words that Jesus gave. They believed that he came from God the Father. Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying, God, for those that you gave me And then in verse 10, Jesus says, all of my disciples are his and they're the father's and Jesus is glorified in him. So this is who Jesus' disciples are. It's like he's reminding the father, not because the father forgot. Like remember even in the Old Testament, sometimes when Moses would pray to to God and he would say, God, remember your covenant. It's not as if God went, oh yeah, I totally forgot about that. No, but Moses just reminds God, remember Israel, they're your chosen people. So it's like Jesus is saying, Father, these are your disciples. Look at, they've believed that I came from you. You gave them to me. Now this is why you should answer my prayer about them. Please answer my prayer on their behalf. So it's amazing, right? Jesus is just reminding God the Father, not because he forgot, but just reminding him, these are who your disciples are, God. And so, what is his prayer then? After he says all these incredible things about his disciples, what is Jesus' prayer for them? And if you wanted to sum up, you know, verses 11 onward, really, the theme that Jesus is praying for his disciples is their unity in verse 11 and in verse 21. Jesus says that they may be one even as we are one. So think about that. Like the, just like the Father and the Son are one, Jesus says that's the kind of unity I'm praying for my followers that they would be that close that they would be one just like Father, you and I are one. He says, right, that they may all be one, verse 21, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. In verse 22, Jesus says, the glory that you've given me, I've given them that they may be one, even as we are one, verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. So, like four separate times, Jesus is praying, God, would you just make my disciples one, unify them. So like I said at the beginning, what, is, what exactly does that mean? That Jesus prays for our unity that we would be one. Does this, does this mean that we just agree about everything? Well, we're one, so we never have arguments or we never have disagreements, right? Think about husbands and wives. You are one, you are unified. You guys never disagree and fight, right? Right? You should all laugh because it's like ridiculous. Of course we disagree with our spouses, but you're still one with them. So we go, well, okay, Jesus, your church, your disciples are one. Does that mean that we just never disagree about anything? That we never argue? What, What exactly are we unified around Jesus? Are we actually left alone by Jesus now to just try really hard To be unified, right? Does Jesus go, well, I'm going back to my father. Good luck. I hope you guys are one and unified. So like I said, three things that I think Jesus is pointing at when he talks about unity. Um, Number one, unity is actually a result of Jesus keeping and guarding us. So no, Jesus does not just, you know, go to the cross. He's not raised from the dead. He doesn't just ascend to heaven and then say, good luck, I hope you're unified. Unity is actually a result of Jesus himself keeping us and guarding us as his followers. Verse 11, Jesus prays, holy father, keep them in your name. Verse 12, while I was with them, Jesus says, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them. Not one has been lost. Verse 15, Jesus says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but what? But that you keep them from the evil one. So that word "keep" in uh, the original language it literally means to guard, to watch over. So it's this picture of God and the Father, or, or Jesus and the Father, guarding us, watching over us, keeping us. And so Jesus says in his prayer that while he was with his disciples physically on earth, he he kept them and he guarded them, and not one was lost except for Judas, right? Judas is called the son of destruction. Now, Jesus isn't giving an excuse, right? He's not saying, well, God, you know, 11 out of 12 ain't bad, right? I kept them except for that guy. He got away. Yeah. Jesus says, the son of destru- the, except for the son of destruction so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So this, what, what this means is Judas didn't fall away and betray Jesus because Jesus did a bad job of guarding and keeping him, right? Judas fell away for two reasons. One, he willingly chose to betray Jesus because of his hard heart, and two, he was predestined to fall away so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Both those statements are true, and I know that we go, it has to be one or the other. Well, it's both. It's both. Judas was predestined to be the son of destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled, and Judas willingly, because of his hard heart, chose to betray Jesus. It doesn't reflect poorly on Jesus' ability to guard and keep his disciples. And really, the Scripture that is being fulfilled is Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So in his prayer on unity, Jesus multiple times prays that his disciples would be kept and guarded from the evil one, kept in God's name. And what what that means is Jesus is praying that you and I would be preserved till the end, that we would would be kept from denying Jesus and, and falling away, that we would be kept in his name. It's like Jesus is saying, God, would you keep your followers in firm fidelity to the truth that I've given them. Keep them in that. And look at verse 11. Jesus says, keep them in your name, which you've given me, and here's why. That they may be one. So our unity as believers is the purpose of us being kept. You and I as followers of Jesus cannot be one as Jesus and the Father are one unless we are kept in God's name. Right? So when you look at the church, massively diverse group of people, I'm talking like church worldwide, right? The church of Christ worldwide, massively diverse group of people, diversity of opinions, diversity of lifestyles, personalities, preferences, and Jesus is the one that keeps us and guards us in our unity. He will do that. So on one hand, like just be reassured that Jesus didn't just leave us and say, man, I hope you guys figure out how to be one and unified because the church is already a mess, right? With Jesus keeping and guarding us, we just mess it up lots. Can you imagine if Jesus wasn't keeping us and guarding us? It'd be way worse. So on one hand, we just breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, Jesus will keep and guard us. He will guard our unity. He will keep us in the Father's name. Secondly, Unity is rooted in the truth of God's Word. Um, Our our unity is based on something, and it is rooted and based on the truth of God's Word. Um, You might hear lots of talk that, like, you know, above all else, the church just has to be unified, even above theology, even above, you know, what we believe about God. Um, A few years ago... Um, I had an interesting conversation with a few people. Uh, Many of you know that I am very critical of the Word of Faith movement and the prosperity gospel, you know, whatever you want to call it, the the very, very, very hyper-charismatic, you know, everyone's going to be healed, that kind of thing, because I think it's just a very destructive worldview that actually puts people in bondage and blinds them to the truth of the gospel. And so I'm very outspoken about that. And so a number of years ago, I had a... A conversation with a few people and they were quite upset because they loved that whole movement and they were involved in it and they viewed that what I was doing by calling it out and saying it's not biblical was divisive and you're not you're spreading disunity. And so we had this you know back and forth conversation and um, I, I pointed to a few parts that I saw, look, this movement that you're involved in is directly disobeying God. Like, how do you account for that? Like you're doing things that God says, don't do that. And it was interesting, one of them at the very end said, well, yeah, yeah, but you know, the most important thing to God is that we're just unified. So what we believe, not as important as us as a church just kind of holding hands and being unified. And I told them, well, I just disagree with you. Our unity is not just some ethereal feeling that, hey, we're all one and we're all unified. Our unity is actually based on something. It's based on the truth of God's word. It's not just based on nothing, right? And so some of you you may even know of this movement called the ecumenical movement. And some of you are, I have no idea what that means. But there's this movement in Christianity where it's like if if everyone who just claims to be a Christian could get along and hold hands, then the whole world would believe in Jesus. And so you may have seen very popular uh, pastors and preachers who, you know, bring up, you know, uh, Roman Catholic bishops and they say, we believe the same thing as you. We're unified. No, we're not. Roman Catholics believe a different gospel, that you're saved by your works, not by faith alone. And so the whole idea of like, well, that doesn't really matter. Let's just be unified. That's not what Jesus is saying. Right? We're not supposed to just say, okay, word of faith, prosperity, you know, heretical views, doesn't matter. Let's just all be unified. Jesus never says, well, above all else, including the truth, just be unified with one another. Right? Our unity is based on something. Verse 14, Jesus says, I've given them your word. Verse 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So, over and over, Jesus talks about the word and the truth, and our unity is actually based on that. It's based on the truth of God's word. And so, truth does not mean, you know, your truth or just what you think is true. Truth is actually objective. I love that Jesus says, In verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Jesus doesn't say, notice what he doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say your word is true, right? He uses a noun. This word is not just true, it is the truth, right? So it's not just a, a, a version of the truth. Jesus says, sanctify your believers, God, in the truth, your word is the truth. So, our, our unity, then, is actually not based on us all getting along. Um, our unity is not even based on us all liking each other. Our unity is based on what is the truth found in the Word of God. Now, here's where this gets extra tricky, then, because there are parts of the Bible that for 2,000 years Christians have interpreted differently. And I don't want to reiterate myself. A few weeks ago, we talked about, you know, what are borders that we would say, you know, yes, you're still a believer. You just think differently than me, right? We use the example of national borders and provincial borders. And if you would read the Bible and come to the conclusion that well Jesus isn't God, well, you've crossed a border that you're no longer in, in the Christian faith anymore. And yet there's, there's passages that you and I can read and interpret differently, and, and those would be, you know, provincial board. I go, you're still a Christian. You just think differently than me. There are primary things and there are secondary things, aren't there? And so what, when it comes to the idea that our unity is rooted in the truth of God's Word, there's grace given around secondary things that we interpret differently. So this is what I love uh, about the New Testament. Jude 1 says this, beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, right? There's there's what unites us, our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, right? So we go, what is our faith? Our faith is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is through him alone. That is our faith. And, And Jude says it was delivered once and for all. So, anyone that says, hey, I got a new addition to the faith, we go, nope, it was delivered once and for all. For for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So there's things that we, we read scripture and we go, that is black and white, true or false. Like if someone comes in and says, hey guys, I have a new idea about the grace of God and how we're saved, we would go, no, 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 that was given to us once and for all years ago. We don't, we don't, there's nothing new about that. That's what unites us, but I love that Jude doesn't say that, you know, people, ungodly people are coming in, and they're distorting people about secondary things, you know, church governance, and how you take communion, and women in ministry, and gifts of the Spirit. He, say, he doesn't say any of that, because for 2,000 years, the church has disagreed about those things, and we've said, we're all still brothers and sisters in Christ, so I can show grace and charity to you, even though I disagree with you. So our unity is based on something. It's rooted in something outside of ourselves. It's rooted in God's Word, in the faith that was given to us once and for all, and, and yet we, we, we still show grace to one another when we go, I disagree with you about this. I've had so many great conversations with people where we've ended like that, where I go, well, I love you, brother, but I think you're wrong, and he's like, okay, ditto, See you on Sunday. And we're like, awesome. Right? Because are we disagreeing over the fundamental foundation of our faith? No, of course not. We're disagreeing over secondary things. So our unity, it's rooted in truth. It's not just just rooted in how we feel about one another. It's subjective. Our unity is in the gospel of Jesus. Thirdly, Our unity involves our sanctification. In verse 17, Jesus says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then in verse 19, He says, for their sake I consecrate. That word is actually sanctify. For their sake I sanctify Myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So we need to ask, well, what exactly is sanctification? I mean, we need to define it a little bit because Jesus says in verse 19 that He consecrated or He sanctified Himself so that His followers could be sanctified. So really, bottom line, the definition of sanctification means that you make holy or you set apart something. Um, that, that's what it means to sanctify something or consecrate something. You're, you're taking it and you're setting it aside and you are making it holy. So when Jesus says that I consecrated or I sanctified myself. Jesus is not saying that um, I had to be made holy. Jesus is not saying how you and I would use sanctification that, you know, there was sin in my life and then I had to repent of it and that's part of sanctification. Jesus didn't have to repent of anything. What he's saying is that I, I was set apart for the specific task. I was dedicated, consecrated to go to the cross, And because Jesus set himself apart and dedicated himself to his death and resurrection, he says, then you and I, his followers, can be sanctified. We can be made holy and set apart. And so all of life, your entire life is sanctification. It's the Holy Spirit exposing sin in you. It's the Holy Spirit helping you put sin to death. You grow in Christ-likeness. You become more and more like Jesus. And so part of our unity part of what unites us as believers is sanctification, right? We hear the gospel, we repent from sin, we deal with our rebellion, we walk alongside one another as we put sin to death and as we grow in holiness. That's what unites us. Like if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. That's a common thing in this room. That unites us. You're being sanctified by the Spirit. So am I. And we walk alongside with one another through that process. So here's what this means. It means that our unity in Jesus has the potential to be really, really messy. As you and I deal with sin, as we humbly repent, as we ask for forgiveness from the Father, and from one another right this is where it just gets so messy because we're broken sinful people and we hurt one another so unity can't mean that we never sin unity can't mean that we never hurt each other we just will but what unites us is sanctification that when i hurt someone or i sin against one of you that i go to you and i go please forgive me i repent of what i've done Please forgive me. And then what happens? We're growing in Christ likeness. That's what unites us. We need God's grace and we need grace from one another. I actually love that us being one, us being united, is not described as some cult like atmosphere right? Because you know what a cult is, is where everyone acts exactly the same, looks exactly the same, and believes absolutely everything that the leader says without question. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's not saying we all just go, yes, whatever Pastor Andrew says, I believe, and then we all look the same, and we never question anything, and we never do anything that, that can, you know, rub each other the wrong way. That, that's not what Jesus is talking about, And this kind of unity is not achieved by hunting for the lowest common theological denominator, right? It's not that we just go, okay, well, fine, I'll I'll believe this about this secondary issue, but you got to do it. It's not about that. What is our unity based on? It's by our common adherence to the apostolic gospel that was given to us once and for all, and it's by our commitment to the shared mission of sharing this gospel with the world, And Jesus says, you are to be one like he and his father are one. And and so think about that. The father and the son are distinguishable persons in the Godhead, right? The father is not Jesus. Jesus is not the father, and yet there's one God. That's the type of unity they they have. They are so one, and yet they're, they're still distinguishable. That's what we're called to be, distinguishable. And yet our unity around the gospel and around Jesus makes us one. We're distinct people, and yet we're one in purpose, in love, and in action. See, I think we get into trouble when we think that our unity means that we can never disagree about anything. That's just not reality. So I I thought about sharing this or not, but even think about the two years that we went through with COVID. We heard certain pastors say, if your church doesn't respond the way that I did, you're all sinners and you're not Christians. I actually heard people say that. When I go, okay, different churches responded differently, okay, really, in my mind, it was, it was simple. Are we united around our COVID response, or are we re- united around the gospel, right? So, that's a fresh thing that COVID has caused so much disunity because we made it a primary thing when it wasn't. The gospel, right, is what unites us, and we get into trouble when we take other things, and we make that as important as Christ crucified, which so often they're just not. So this is what our unity is based on. Jesus keeps and guards us. Our unity is based on the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, and our unity involves us in the process of being sanctified. Now, what are the results of this? What are the results of you and I as followers of Jesus pursuing this kind of unity? One, number one, we're filled with joy. Jesus says in verse 13, "...but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." When you and I live together in unity and we're united, not around every, absolutely every single thing, but we're united around the gospel with the goal being our sanctification and Christ likeness, and we're being guarded and kept by Jesus, one of the results is that we have unbelievable joy. And joy is not just happiness, right? Happiness is, is more shallow. Happiness is just based on everything in my life going right, right? But joy is kind of this settled, gladness and delight and you've probably had experiences like that right I think about our 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 life group that we're in there's so many times when we Meet on a Friday, and we eat a meal together, and our kids are playing together. There's been times when we've prayed for one another, and we've walked through significant hard challenges in you know people's lives in our life group. And yet, so often when Friday comes, you're just filled with joy because I just love these brothers and sisters in Christ. We just love being together. We love praying for one another. We love eating together. And I know that many of you who are in life groups, you're like, yes, it's just it's such a good thing. That's what Jesus is talking about. When we are united around him, around the gospel, around his life and death and resurrection for our salvation, it fills us with joy when we're with people who believe the same thing like that. Secondly, it results in the experience of the indwelling love of God and the presence of Jesus. And this one is is even hard to wrap your minds around, but in verse 26, Jesus says, I made known to them your name. And will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus, he's just prayed, like that's, that's the last thing he prays. That's the closing of his prayer. He's talked about unity, that we would be one. And then he ends by saying that I, I, Jesus is going to continue to make God the Father's name known to us. And that love with which God the Father loved Jesus will actually be in us. And that Jesus himself, his presence will be in us. Now, I I don't know how to explain metaphysically what that means, but that is unbelievable that Jesus says the same love that God the Father has for me is going to be in you and I'm going to be in you. So when you and I live together in unity, centered around the gospel and involving our sanctification, Jesus seems to say that his presence and his love will be in us. And then lastly, one of the outcomes of us pursuing this kind of unity is that it becomes a witness to the world. Verse 21, Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then even uh, later on in in verse um, 23, he says, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. So one of the outcomes of, of us being united Right? Rooted in the gospel and on Jesus is that it becomes a witness to the world. The world looks at the church, looks at believers who are united around the death and resurrection of Jesus, who are united around our sanctification, repenting, being humble, dealing with sin, pursuing Christ likeness. Jesus says the world looks in on that and they're drawn to Jesus because of that oneness. I think it's actually a way more powerful testimony to the world, not when every single person in a church agrees on everything. I think it's far more powerful to the world when you and I can disagree on secondary things and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that, that, shows, that speaks volumes to the world. Then they go, wait, 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 wait a second. You two disagree about this issue and yet you stand next to each other and you sing and you worship Jesus together, they go, how is that possible? And you go, it's Jesus. That's, that's a massive testimony to our world. I think that is a powerful message when you and I as believers can choose to be united around the main thing, around the gospel of Christ that we can lay aside Maybe preferences or wants or needs so that the Word of God is proclaimed and then people are saved and we grow in our walk with Jesus. It's a powerful witness to the world. So, as individual members of the body of Christ, there's a few questions you can ask yourself as we transition into a time of taking communion. I, I can't think of a better way to end our time together by remembering the thing that unites us as believers, the death of Jesus. So to ask yourself a few questions, do you rejoice and treasure and marvel at the fact that Jesus keeps and guards you in your Christian walk, that you're not left on your own to try and scrape by? Do you love the truth of the Word of God, right? And in your disagreements with brothers and sisters on interpretations of secondary things, are you able to show grace and charity to them? And are you participating in sanctification? Are you responding to your sin with confession and repentance? Do you lovingly point out sin in your brother or sister's lives with the hope of restoration because you love them and you want them to become more like Jesus? So like I said, I think it's such a fitting way to end our time together because as we take communion, we're being reminded of really the thing that unites us, right? This is this is what our unity is based on. It's on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. His blood spilled for us. And so, in a moment, I'll, I'll ask the team to to come up, and um, they'll they'll play some instrumental music, and, and then we'll give you some time to to just pray and think through, and 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 maybe reflect on some of those questions. But when you're ready, we've got two tables up front, and we've got a few at the back, Um, and you can go and grab the the bread and the cup, and and then just hold on to them, and we'll take it together at the end of our service. But again, my, my prayer for us is that this is what we would be united around, that we would allow, you know, secondary things to be just that, secondary things, still important, but not the main thing, And that this would be what unites us, that we have the same Savior who died for us, who spilled his blood on our behalf to save us from sin, that the gospel would be what our unity is based on. So let me pray, and then we'll give you some time to just think and reflect, and then we'll take communion together. So Jesus, I just thank you um, That's on that night that you were betrayed, that you ate a meal with your disciples. And you gave us, Jesus, such a um, practical, tangible thing to remind ourselves of what is of utmost importance in the world. That, Jesus, you came and you lived a perfect life, that you willingly went to a death that we deserved. That you died and that you were buried in a tomb and that three days later, Jesus, you walked out alive, purchasing our salvation. And as a church, Jesus, that is what our unity is based on. It is based on your life, death, and resurrection. And so, God, I just pray for us. I know that not even just in this church, but in the church, over the last two years, there's been a lot of disunity in a lot of whatever you want to call it. And some, sure, maybe is justified, but a lot, God, I think, is because we've made secondary things primary things. So God, forgive me because I know that my heart and my thoughts have thought things like that. That if people don't do things exactly the way that I want, then they must be wrong and I must be right. God, forgive me. Uh, My heart a lot of times has just not been in a good place. And Jesus, you are what unifies us as believers. It is your life and death and resurrection. That is what matters the most. Salvation through you and you alone. And so I pray that that would be What unites us as believers, that would be what fuels our passion to share with a dying and broken world that desperately needs you. So now, God, as we spend some time just taking communion and reflecting and thinking, Holy Spirit, would you just do your work in us and that this would just be a joyous time as we celebrate our Savior. And so we just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.